Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. part of a wider project trying to look at the Catholic Church in the English-speaking world and to answer a series of questions uh, about how uh, the church came to be the way it is throughout the English-speaking world. And that seems like an odd way to put it. Church is the church. And that's of course true at one level. But anybody who's ever spent time in, for example, a Spanish-speaking parish or in a German parish or in parishes throughout the world, there's a different, let's call it, look and feel. I think that's a fair observation. There are also different institutional structures, political arrangements, uh, relationships with the host society, whether governments, uh, majority populations that are other than Catholic, all of which are different. And of course, throughout the English-speaking world, there's the overwhelming fact of the Irish. And I always ask a question to audiences like this, whether I'm in Australia or New Zealand, and certainly in the US, is how many people would think of themselves as Irish? in this room, brief show of hands. We're gonna call that slightly over half. That's actually on the low side. I've had audiences uh, in Australia in particular where I've gotten 90, 95%. I think it's the Catholic topic that draws them out. But how many of those, a bit more than half, born in Ireland? How many parents born in Ireland? One. It's not really that Irish. If you have a grandparent, you can get a passport, so we probably should push it back one more. Why is this? Why is there such an endurance of Irish-American identity, particularly Irish-American Catholic identity? Another way of asking that question is, where do all the Irish Protestants gone? People think of Irish emigration as being a Catholic phenomenon, particularly associated with the Great Famine in the mid-19th century, fleeing hunger, British oppression, starvation, rain. But of course, Irish Protestants, usually members of the Church of Ireland, uh, an Anglican church, but by no means only, uh, were actually a majority of Irish migrants to places like Ontario, in South Africa, in parts of Australia, in the South Island of New Zealand. And yet the Irish Protestant identity, with the exception to a degree of not that far south of here, the so-called Scotch-Irish identity, has largely vanished. So how does an Irish Catholic identity endure? What is it about either Catholicism on the one hand or Irish migration on the other that causes that fusion? Not just here in the US. This is a phenomenon across the world. They brought their clergy. They brought their clergy. My point is actually going to be today, their clergy came first, or at least their bishops did. And that'll be the subject as I move on to try and explain uh, why there is such a consistent global phenomenon and why the look, of feel, look and feel of Irish Catholicism is so enduring, why it's been so successful in preserving all your hands going up when I ask who's Irish. How does that work? And the first thing to remember, and sec following on your point there, is that this happens, that is the Irish or a particular sort of Irish gain control of the Catholic Church in the English-speaking world in most cases and in most places before the great wa waves of famine and post-famine migration. That is, when the large numbers of migrants come, there is waiting for them in most places a pre-existing ecclesiastical infrastructure 
that is not only ready and eager to welcome them, but helps build and insists on building, indeed, the sort of physical infrastructure, schools, hospitals, universities, uh, graveyards, uh, that will welcome and support these Irish migrants and in turn, in time, other migrant populations of Catholics, Italians, whoever, Germans, and others. But more to the point, will bed them in, as it were, or inculcate in them a fusion, I call it Hiberno-Romanism, a fusion of Irish identity and a particular set or subset of, of Catholic devotional culture, which is essentially that that was normative in Rome around the 1820s. The theology of Rome, the architecture of Rome. I know this sounds odd, thinking about Catholic, Roman Catholic, same thing. But this is Roman Catholic in a very literal sense, not the older traditional French models, the older Spanish models, no more orthodox or heterodox one or the other, just different ways of doing things. But particularly the Rome in which these Irish bishops were themselves trained as, seminar as seminary students in the late 1810s and early 1820s. In other words, porting that particular moment in the city of Rome's history, in the church in Rome's history, and it becomes the normative model that many of you would have grown up in. That endures certainly down to Vatican II, but also can be seen in a wider ethnic context in the endurance of Irish-Australian identity, Irish-New Zealand identity, or Irish-American identity, why all the hands go up. So I'm going to tell you a very brief and abbreviated story, and I do want to make sure I leave time for questions. So think of this as a sort of tour. Uh, of the basics of my argument. And it starts, I think, in 1830 in Philadelphia when a young Irish priest called Francis Patrick Kenrick is appointed coadjutor bishop of Philadelphia to another Irishman. This is an important point. It's not just all Irish. It's not as a friend of mine calls it patty counting. It's a certain kind of Irish with certain ideological, political, the political theological and ecclesiastical preferences and ideas that they share. Kenrick turns up, he's been assigned to Philadelphia because the 89-year-old bishop is a loon. He has been a real problem. He'd actually been suspended as a bishop, summoned to Rome, uh, where he'd agreed to live out the remaining, remainder of his days in retirement. And then he went out a window, an impressive feat at the age of 88, and escaped back to the United States. This was awkward. Kenrick, who had been trained in Rome, went from Dublin in 1816 to the College of the Propaganda Fide, uh, the great missionary establishment, which was first opened in 1622 to evangelize those parts of the world uh, that were out with the traditional European Catholic states. So he's at the Propaganda Fide College. He learns the devotional preferences, practices, architecture, theology, fashions. I don't mean clothes, but what's in, what's in vogue in the Rome of Pius VII? He goes to Kentucky as a missionary. He gets involved in various polemical battles with local Protestants. He impresses everybody in this still very small, uh, very fragile, and not very Irish American church. The church at this time in the US is dominated by French and Germans, particularly at Episcopal level. And he gets to Philadelphia. And there's all kinds of wonderful newspaper stories you can read. Uh, at one time or another, both the bishop and the coadjutor bishop lock each other out of the Episcopal residence and cause the other person's furniture to be placed on the lawn. The local Protestants think this is great fun. 
the elderly Bishop Conwell accuses the new Bishop Kenrick of, what was the line? Opening a restaurant in my house and taking borders. It was messy. But what Kenrick represents is the first of this new wave of Roman-trained Irish bishops to have an American see. But he finds an episcopate, only 10 at this stage, or 11, I can't remember. This level of imprecision, by the way, is very poor in your essays. Don't do it. Professor O'Brien will be very unhappy with you. 10 or 11, a small number, almost all of which were French and German, trained mostly in pre-revolutionary Europe, many associated with the Sulpician order, which was a French order uh, dedicated originally to the training of seminarians, Grand Sulpice in Paris, uh, and a similar one in Montreal, both 17th century foundations. And these men were no more, no less Catholic than the Irish who followed them, but they were a different sort. Their theology tended to be Gallican. If we have any theology majors, uh, you may have encountered this concept, uh, where let's just say Rome and the Pope were kept at a respectful distance. Uh, the 19th century neo-Ultramontanism, which culminates in Vatican I and the definition of papal infallibility, was less popular with these people. They weren't necessarily opposed, but this wasn't their theological origins. So Kenrick is a new breeze, and he's not welcome, as new breezes, new brooms often aren't. He finds himself in conflict with these bishops, these French and Germans, to a degree on ethnic grounds. They tend to articulate their opposition to him on ethnic grounds. Blank, blank Irishman is a frequent uh, recurring phrase. But it's really an ideological one. This is about how you do ecclesiastical structures, ecclesiastical government. It becomes an ethnic question. So Kenrick needs help. He has one ally in the South, in Charleston, a man called John England, which is possibly the worst name ever for an Irishman. Um, England had been down there since 1821, an isolated voice in the American hierarchy. Uh, he and Kenrick form immediately an Irish faction. But you need assistance. The Archbishop of Baltimore is a Sulpician, the one Archiepiscopal see in the United States. They are horrified by these developments, by these thrusting Irish, young Irish bishops. Want to change things. So Kenrick looks to Rome for help. But Rome's a long way away. You can't just go. You can't pick up the phone. You can't send an email. You can't say, you can send a letter, but by the time you send a letter and a question comes back to ask you to clarify paragraph two and you send the clarification to paragraph two, you're into many months. This is the early 1830s. That time distance becomes crucially important. What you need is an agent. You need somebody in Rome who can represent your interests, who can be trusted to take action when there's no time for a letter to go back and forth, who can explain away your mistakes, who can elaborate on the mistakes of your opponents, give them loving attention. And Kenrick has to think, well, who on earth can I trust to do this? And what he lands on is another young Irishman, a man called Paul Cullen, who had arrived at the Propaganda College from County Kildare uh, in 1820. So he overlapped with Kenrick only by about eight to ten months, but they became friends. And they remained friends after Kenrick had gone out to Kentucky and then ultimately to Philadelphia in 1830. And Cullen had pursued a career of academic brilliance at the Propaganda Fide. He had won every prize the Roman schools had to offer, uh, culminating in his doctoral defense in what was known as he defended all theology and ecclesiastical history, quote unquote, in front of the reigning pontiff and two future popes. Any of you who freak out about a senior thesis, 
Think about that. He excelled. He mastered not only Italian, which of course was necessary to living in Rome and a crucial skill, Latin inevitably, but also French, Chaldean, Hebrew, Syriac, and ancient Greek. And he was very disappointed in himself that his German was a bit poor. Are you getting the picture? High flyer. More to the point, he impressed a man called Mauro Capillari, who was the cardinal prefect of the propaganda, who in 1830 is elected Pope Gregory XVI. Pope Gregory famously built a small, very small, five or six people, network of younger, academically brilliant protégés in Rome, of whom Cullen was one. Nicholas Wiseman, the first cardinal archbishop of Westminster in England, appointed to that job in 1850, was another. Uh, Antonio Rosmini, some of you may know from theology, was yet another, founder of the Rosminian order. Very small group. So Cullen has immediate, direct, and privileged access to the Pope. Kenrick, in 1830, the same year Gregory is elected, is needing an agent. You can see how his thought processes would work. His first thought had actually bring Cullen out to Philadelphia to run a new seminary. Cullen says, no, 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 no. I'm quite happy where I am. Thank you. And any of you spent time in Rome, I'm sure Philadelphia is great. He's going to stay in Rome as long as he can. He also turns down in the next few years uh, appointment to Charleston, South Carolina. He's suggested to become Archbishop of New York, uh, president of the seminary at Maynooth in Ireland. He turns all this stuff down. His career is going to be in Rome, he thinks. So Kendrick writes to him, Cullen becomes his agent. And Cullen's job is to represent the needs of the Irish American bishops to Rome, to counter the information coming from French bishops, from German bishops, and from the Archbishop of Baltimore who, although an English-born Anglophone, is a Sulpician, and therefore tied into that network. And this is the marks the beginning of a career that lasts till Cullen's own death in 1878, Ireland's first cardinal from 1866, but carries on long after that in the network of former students, Dublin diocesan priests, he becomes Archbishop of Dublin, and nephews, cousins, cousins of cousins, and so forth that extends to foreign dioceses, rural parishes, convent schools. His family and uh, patronage network is enormous and essentially forms Catholicism in the English-speaking world. But he learns his trade because Kenrick is having problems in Philadelphia and Kenrick knows who to talk to. Because Cullen has one other great advantage other than the big one of being the protege of the reigning pope is that in Rome, this is just a coincidence. You know, history does have a lot of coincidences, things that just are. Almost nobody in Rome can read English. They can read French, they can read German. You'd be surprised how few could read Latin, uh, or at least well. And as source, they can read Italian. Cullen's a linguist. I gave you his list of languages. His Italian is perfect. And indeed, over the 20-plus years he spent in Rome, 30 years he spent in Rome, he becomes more comfortable in Italian than English, as he himself admits. But this is a quirk. How do you explain a conflict between the elderly bishop who's putting your law furniture on the lawn and says you're opening a restaurant and the young Irish bishop when it takes three months for letters to go backwards and forwards and communications to come? How do you, if you're Rome and the propaganda fide, how do you figure out what's going on? You can't read the English. There's newspaper stories coming in, there's pamphlets coming in, there's letters from priests, there's all this stuff. How do you work out what's going on? You need to have a trusted 
English and Italian speaking advisor. Right? This makes sense. Here, you do it all. Tell us what's going on in Philadelphia. Because we're busy men, we have all these other places to run. The Propaganda Fide is responsible for India, for the South Pacific, for much of Africa. I mean, this is a busy thing. So Cullen says, absolutely, I'll do that. I will look into the matter, and I will write you a report in Italian explaining the situation and recommending steps for your consideration, your eminence. He's already the agent, though, of one faction, the Irish. Guess what his reports always recommend? The problem is, he writes, and writes again, and again, and again for the next 50 years, is that English-speaking populations must be ruled by English-speaking bishops who must, should be Irish, and they should be a particular sort. They should pursue particular theological, ecclesiastical, and devotional goals and aims. And this is enormously successful. In the United States, you begin to see the sudden appointment of Irish bishops, first to Cincinnati, then to Buffalo, New York City, uh, Pittsburgh. There was a great fight. Kenrick was trying to create the Diocese of Pittsburgh. He got blocked and blocked and blocked because Cullen's vice rector in Rome at the Irish College, he became the head of the seminary in Rome, a man called Michael O'Connor, terrified the French and German bishops uh, who tried to block the creation of Pittsburgh, even though they erected places like Natchez, Mississippi, uh, which by some counts had as few as 130 Catholics, whereas Pittsburgh already had two large churches and tens of thousands of Catholics. Natchez gets a diocese, Pittsburgh doesn't. Why? Because they knew if Pittsburgh became a diocese, Cullen would arrange for the appointment of this other Irishman. They managed to delay it into the 1840s, almost seven years delay. Irishmen, not everywhere, not every time, you don't need that, are being sprinkled across the United States, culminating in Kenrick's own translation to Baltimore in 1852 as Archbishop. Uh, many of you are certainly of the older generation uh, might remember the Baltimore Catechism, uh, Kenrick's uh, translation to part, I don't think it was the whole Bible, but much of the Bible. Uh, the first national synod of the United States, as opposed to a provincial council, was held in Baltimore in 1852, organized by Kenrick. But what happens then is that Cullen takes this lesson he's learned and he starts applying it first in South Africa in the late 1830s where Irish bishops begin to be appointed to the Cape of Good Hope. Then to India where Irish bishops first go to Calcutta in the 1830s, then to, to Madras, uh, then to Hyderabad and then very unsuccessfully in 1849 to Bombay. Begins to look north to Canada where a Scottish bishops and priests dominate Maritime Canada, Atlantic Canada, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, because there was a large Scottish Catholic migration. And this is always the point. It's not just enough to be English-speaking. It's one thing to say, look, the United States is English-speaking. There really ought not to be French and German bishops. It's another thing to say that in Nova Scotia, where the Scots may be bilingual. There's a lot of Gaelic speakers there. But it wasn't obvious why you would want Irish people. There was Irish population in Halifax, the city, but lots of Scots Catholics elsewhere, in, particularly in Nova Scotia. So you begin to see a pattern. Two Irish priests in Halifax, annoyed at their Scottish bishop, begin to complain. They've already realized this place to send your complaints is care of the Irish College Rome and Paul Cullen. He receives these complaints. He packages them together. He translates them into Italian. And Archbishop, oh sorry, Archbishop, Bishop, um, Bishop Fraser of Nova Scotia reads in the newspapers one day that he's being sent an Irish coadjutor. This is the first he's heard of it. Nobody in Rome had bothered to check. And of course, there's all sorts of slanders. 
Fraser never visits Halifax. Well, he did. Uh, at one point, the Irish were claiming that Fraser was 20 years older than he was and in ill health. Uh, later on, they would claim that Bishop Jean-Baptiste Pompalier of Auckland, who was a, effectively a saint, a uh, wonderful gentle man, and in his late 80s was having affairs with nuns. Uh, they claimed the Bishop of Glasgow was, had, was it softening of the brain. Uh, they claimed the uh, Irish but not Hiberno-Roman Bishop of Cape Town had paralysis. He didn't. Uh, they claimed that John Dubois of New York City was insane. He was intermittently. Uh, do you see the point? All of these stories, this is going over 50, 60 years of the inadequacies, and of course more serious inadequacies. They weren't properly attending to their flocks. They weren't insisting on the devotional culture that was authentically Roman, authentically ultramontane, uh, that catechesis was poor, that they weren't providing enough Catholic schools, or they were uh, making compromises with the public school systems, whether that's in Australia or New York City. Uh, all of these things, some true, some false, some a mixture, would find their way back to Rome and be packaged and of course, Rome is horrified. Oh my gosh, that's things are terrible in Buffalo, or terrible in Melbourne, or terrible in Halifax. Something must be done. What must be done? We don't speak English. Cullen, Dr. Cullen, what should we do? Oh, oh well, since you've asked, uh, here's a list of three Irish bishops you can choose from. Uh, pay no attention to the fact that two of them are my cousins. <laughs> Um, later on, of course, there'd be nephews, including the first Cardinal Archbishop of Sydney, Australia. Um, and they'll go out and they'll, they'll do a job for you. You see this then in, I say, Maritime Canada in the 1840s. In 1840, late 1849, he arrives in 1850, Cullen is appointed Archbishop of Dublin, becomes the author of the famous Devotional Revolution, a thesis advanced by the American historian Emmett Larkin, uh, I think in 1972 in a famous article. Uh, which essentially argues that, well, Larkin's famous phrase is that Paul Cullen made the great bulk of the Irish practicing Catholics, the argument being that the Irish hadn't been really Catholic before 1850. Now, that's a problematic thesis in a whole variety of ways. I think Larkin himself, in later years, admitted he might have over-egged the pudding a little bit, particularly with that phrase about practicing Catholics. But the reality is that Cullen, when he arrives in Ireland, absolutely does change uh, for example, you see that there are only 1,000 nuns in Ireland in 1850. It's more than 3,500 when he dies in 1878. You see uh, systematic reports from the 26 Irish dioceses uh, of lack of uh, instruction, of poor preparation for confirmation, relatively low attendance at mass, which when you think of Ireland later in the 19th century and certainly in the 20th century, where mass attendance in Catholic populations is well over 90%, uh, David Miller uh, of Carnegie Mellon uh, at one point uh, estimated probably more or less accurately that in rural areas mass attendance was in the 1830s 40-ish percent among Catholics. Uh, there's certainly indications from Auckland, New Zealand uh, as late as 1870 that mass attendance was under 50 percent among Irish Catholics. So what you're seeing is a change throughout the English-speaking world of the kind of Catholicism that's being introduced, the level of attentiveness. And of course, as we all know, the Catholic Church is hierarchical. Things come from the top down. And particularly when Rome is a long, long, long way away, it's the bishop It's important. But the Irish have a little bit of a twist because what they realize is that in a place like the United States or Australia or Canada or wherever, 
it's very hard for one bishop to make the guy next door, the bishop next door, do what you want. You know, if he's pursuing a different devotional structures, he's got a different relationship with the state, he has a different attitude towards education. As long as he doesn't go beyond too far beyond bounds to draw Roman attention, you can't do anything about it. So they hit on the idea of synods, provincial councils. And the notion was very clear. And you see this first in the United States, then in Ireland itself, and then everywhere else throughout the English-speaking world. What you need to do, because politics is hard. There's always these countervailing forces. There's other voices coming into the propaganda fide. You can never win all the fights. You only have to win a majority. So Cullen's insight, Kendrick's insight really, which Cullen adopts and perfects, is you need to get a bare majority in a hierarchy. If your hierarchy is 10, have six who are Irish and in your network. Because then you can get together, you can vote on liturgical reforms, on devotional practices, on rules about seminaries, all these different things by a majority. And then that decrees go to Rome. Rome approves it because Cullen's there saying this is a wonderful thing. Yeah, they make changes, sure, but they usually approve it. And then you can impose it. It's very hard to write to Rome and say, the bishop next door is not doing what he's supposed to do if there's no real set of rules. Because he writes back saying, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. I'm a loyal son of the church. I'm doing exactly what, it's just an Irish thing. But if there's a synod and Rome's approved it, you can say, he's not doing, he's not doing what it says to do in chapter four. It's a way of compelling. And what you actually get then is you sort of pull the Irishness through a system without having to dominate every Episcopal appointment everywhere, every time. And the consequences of this are really quite profound. Again, Australia from the 1850s. Scotland, unsuccessfully, uniquely, in the 1860s. The Scots are the only ones to fight the Irish off. And they were very clever about doing so, because by this point, this had happened in five or six different places. So when Cullen causes, when the Irish in Glasgow start complaining, the old movie, complaining to Rome about their crazy Bishop John Gray, who had softening of the brain, supposedly, he was a bit unstable, it has to be said. And Cullen goes to Rome and says, things in Glasgow are terrible. What should we do? Well, I have a list of three names. They pick one, John, um, James Lynch, who was appointed, uh, at that time, Glasgow or Scotland didn't have a hierarchy, so he was appointed vicar apostolic of the Western District, Glasgow. Then he arrives and he's a bit of a disaster. So in this case, Cullen made a bad choice. Lynch was clumsy. But the Scots knew what was happening. They'd seen the movie. So they send, they dig this guy out of the highlands called Call MacDonald, who was a priest up in the Outer Hebrides somewhere. And they did this because they knew he'd been a student at the Propaganda College. He spoke perfect Italian. And his job, and you, I have the, I've seen the letter, the job, they're very open. Your job is to go stand in the Propaganda Fide and talk to people and explain that the Irish are lying. So Lynch is clumsy, Call MacDonald is sitting in Rome, and then the Scots have another idea. Bishop Gray, the one supposedly with the softening of the brain, He's having a lucid patch. So they send him to Rome, and his job is to stand around and not be crazy. <coughs> so it's undermining the Irish. Lynch is recalled, and Scotland avoids Irish bishops for another 50 years. But everywhere else this fails, New Zealand in the 1870s. But the implications of this are more than just the sort of grubby ecclesiastical politics that sometimes we don't want to look too closely at. But as historians, I think we should. Because, of course, the Irish weren't doing this just for self-aggrandizement or for ethnic aggrandizement. They were doing this to advance a particular set of 
beliefs. And again, that's a difficult concept as well because it's all within a Catholic world. There are no liberals and conservatives or heretics and orthodox going on here. These are people with genuine differences of opinion. But the Irish were very much representing the growing opinion of Rome, particularly in the uh, papacy of Pius IX. And what they do is very, very clear. They insist, and any time you see one of these Cullenite Hiberno-Roman bishops turn up, you will immediately see the importation of religious sisters. You will immediately see the establishment of Catholic schools. You will immediately see the establishment of other Catholic institutions, such as hospitals, orphanages, and so forth. You'll see immediately a graveyard open for Catholics. You will see an immediate emphasis on the parish um, and centering liturgical and community life on the parish. You will see absolute increased supervision of parish priests by the bishop. You will see minority ethnic communities, such as Germans or French or whatever it might be, given ethnic parishes and almost left alone, pushed off to the side. But the majority of the parishes will be Irish. And in them, there will be the devotions current, as I said, in 1820s Rome. Things like devotion to the Sacred Heart, 40 hours devotion, all of these things which are from a menu of possible choices, particular saints, all of which will then become one selection, which will be universal from Sydney to uh, Cape Town to Pittsburgh. And it will be presented as normative. This will be the world in which Irish Catholics and the other Catholic immigrants as they come will be raised. This is what Catholicism will look and feel like. And, of course, there are incredibly effective social controls as part of this package. Long before Netamari in the early 20th century, which very much makes mixed marriages, marriages between Catholics and non-Catholics, incredibly difficult. That's 1907, 1906? Anyone know the date? Ish. Again, don't do that on your essay. The Irish are aggressive about mixed marriages much, much earlier. For example, in Cape Town in the 1880s, an Irish parishioner had uh, contracted a marriage with a local Protestant without asking the bishop's permission. He has her denounced from the altar and publicly excluded until she makes a full apology. And there's any number of instances of this. They check very carefully in 1910 in St. John's, Newfoundland, one of the most Irish places in the empire. Uh, there is a report sent back to the bishop where in the vast cathedral parish, anyone been to St. John's? The basilica, now as it now is, sits over the entire city, a massive structure, one of the biggest Catholic churches in North America for a very, very long time. Uh, not now, but only relatively recently supplanted in size. I believe it's bigger than St. Patrick's uh, in New York. I think, in fact, I'm quite sure it is. And the parish priest reported back with pride, and the phrase was, only three mixed marriages have been attempted in my parish in the last 10 years. Other places in Newfoundland that reported back in the same uh, series of letters, there were none at all. And this, of course, endures for a very long time. Uh, the clearest example I have of this comes from uh, New Zealand, uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, in the South Island in 1942, during the Second World War. And there's a wonderful, quite poignant, in fact, series of letters uh, between the bishop of the day, an Irishman, one of this network, uh, although many years after Cullen's death in 1878, it's almost 100 years now, 75 years, uh, and an Anglican who had married a Catholic woman, had gone through all the procedures, uh, one of which, of course, was that the children would be educated as Catholics. And this man had been in the New Zealand Air Force, RNZAF, and had been badly, badly wounded uh, in the early phases of the Second World War, had been repatriated to New Zealand. And the issue was the parish priest had reported to the bishop that the, this man's children were being sent to the state school across the street from their house 
Bishop writes to say, what are you doing? Man writes back, says, I'm terribly sorry. I've been badly wounded. Uh, we're in quite difficult financial circumstances. I'd like to spend time with my kids. The nearest Catholic school is many miles away. The kids would have to board. But I understand my obligations. May I, he asks, may I let them see out their term, and I will send them to the Catholic school at the end of the semester? Answer comes back, no. Now, on one way this reads as heartless, and yeah, honestly it was. But of course what this is, is it's a necessary feature of maintaining ethnic enclaves, of maintaining that sense of separateness that allows an identity, like all the hands going up about Ireland, being Irish, allows that kind of thing to endure. Any soccer fans? You know, Celtic and Glasgow? Celtic and Rangers, the great rivalry, a little bit. Again, the symbolism is completely conflated. The Catholic team is Celtic, which has a green shamrock, green Irish, Irish Republican imagery oftentimes. But again, the conflation between Irish and Catholic becomes almost perfect. Now, there are other reasons for this. There are local variations. Professor O'Brien will tell you loads about them in, in uh, America uh, in the 20th century and before. But they have a necessary common ground, which is that there is a network within the Catholic Church growing from Francis Kenrick in 1830 in Philadelphia and then going through the crucial personage of Paul Cullen, who was able to bring his protégés, his former students, his Dublin diocesan priests, and his relatives. Sometimes these people are all the same thing. And they themselves are able to endure. And this is important. Now, for example, this is not just at the Episcopal level. Uh, several of Cullen's cousins and nieces, after his death, established St. Bridget's Missionary College in County Kilkenny, which is run by the Sisters of Mercy, but actually produces young Irish women, not just for the Sisters of Mercy, but for any religious order that needs them. More than 20 different female institutions and congregations taking Irish women for the empire. So say the St. Joseph Sisters in Ballarat, Victoria, Australia, say we need four people. They'll send effectively an order to St. Bridget's who will then find four Irish girls with a vocation who are happy to go to Australia, who they will then educate, often very poor girls, they give them high quality education, they'll be sent to Australia. Again, this is run by Cullen's nieces and cousins on behalf of one of Cullen's other nephews who's now Cardinal Archbishop of Australia, of Sydney, Australia. So these networks are enormously enduring. And within them there is a commonality of devotional practice, a commonality of ecclesiastical governance, a commonality of emphasis, a commonality of theology, uh, and an insistence on the social controls that on the one hand do keep Catholics and Protestants apart but also very effectually merge and meld Irish and Catholic identities to the point that I always think of this. Anyone been to the Irish American Cultural Institute in Canton, Massachusetts? Anyone familiar with that, I would imagine? Okay, it's, it's a big place and it purports to be the major center. It is not a Catholic institution. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the church. Okay, just not. It's not anti-Catholic, it's just not Catholic. But if you look at their website, they very hand, very conveniently, give you the local mass times. Because of course Irish people, Irish Americans, they would want to know when mass was. They don't get the local Episcopal church times. They don't get the local Presbyterian church. Why? Because the Irish identity has fallen away from Protestant Irish migration. Even though, as I say, it wasn't a majority in, in and certainly not in Massachusetts, but it would have been in Ontario, not that far away, in Canada and many other places. And it was often a, a substantial minority, even in very heavily Catholic places, because those people have simply stopped putting their hand up, probably several generations ago. So what this network does, it points to the contingency and chance, the fact that nobody really read English, 
the fact that Cullen was brilliant in Rome, knew Kenrick, and was a protege of Moro Capillari, later Gregory XVI. The fact that this, this was unchallenged for many years. The fact that there were genuine weaknesses to exploit, and that these Irish were very ruthless in doing so. And then, of course, the biggest contingency of all, which is, and I say, in the United States, this is pre-famine migration. The Irish are large and in charge before 1845, 1845 in the American church. But then there's the wave of migrants, preeminently to the United States, but by no means only to the United States. So there's huge numbers of Irish, oftentimes coming from backgrounds in Ireland, Irish-speaking backgrounds, rural backgrounds, where mass attendance had been relatively poor, where clerical supervision had been relatively light, where devotional practice had been kindly described as idiosyncratic. It's very kindly put in some cases. Where belief in magical objects and fairies were fairly commonplace still. This is, in many cases, the poorer waves of migrants who are brought into a pre-existing structure embedded in their Irishness, confirmed in their Irishness, that Irishness is modified to a hybrid identity, Irish-American, Irish-Australian, Irish-New Zealand, whatever it is, but also Romanized. And I sort of modify Larkin's thesis to say, I don't think Paul Cullen made the great bulk of Irish hybrid, or Irish Catholics, as he said. I would say Irish across the world. I don't think he made them Catholics. I think he made them Roman Catholics in the very literal sense. So I would put to you as a thesis that you're continuing Irish identity and to a great extent, your daily experience of your faith owes an enormous amount to these contingent stages, to this network, to the Irish Catholicism that is genuinely different in look and feel to Spanish Catholicism or Mexican Catholicism, whatever it might be, one not being any better or more orthodox than the other, but different. That what you're actually looking at is a combination of Ireland in the 19th century and the city of Rome in the 1820s. It's the Church of Pius VII not even Pius IX necessarily. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.